Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for July 15th, 2020. As always, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to the show. Uh, I never, almost never, I think, do I actually plug my newsletter in these shows, so uh, I'm going to take the opportunity to do that for a moment. Uh, I don't know why I don't, but uh, I just forget, I think. Uh, if you enjoy these interviews, uh, please check out my newsletter, Foreign Exchanges, uh, at fx.substack.com, uh, where you can sign up for my free email list, get access to regular uh, updates on international affairs, U.S. foreign policy, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, or if you like, uh, sign up with a paid subscription and get access to even more updates and uh, essays and more podcasts and uh, all kinds of extra stuff. Um, that's my plug. Uh, and now we'll move on. Uh, <laughs> I'm very pleased uh, to be joined today by the co-hosts of a podcast that you may have heard about uh, called Blowback, a podcast about the Iraq War. Uh, the Iraq War, to me, uh, is in many ways kind of a Rosetta Stone type uh, construct for understanding the state uh, of modern American politics in all of its wretchedness. Uh, I don't think that you can, for example, uh, understand the rise of Donald Trump uh, without understanding the Iraq War and the climate around the Iraq War and how it changed American politics. Um, I don't think that you can understand the current media ecosystem uh, without understanding what it was like at the time of the Iraq War and, and the role that the media played in kind of getting us into that war in a sense, or at least making the case to the public. Um, that said, the Iraq War is very old now. <clears throat> Excuse me. We just passed uh, the 18th birthday of the global war on terror last year uh, with, uh, you know, it's been 18 years since uh, the 9-11 attacks. So uh, a person, uh, as many people pointed out at the time, a person could uh, quite literally have graduated from high school uh, or graduated from high school this year, I guess, uh, without knowing, having known any other uh, kind of existence uh, apart from the global war on terror. We are rapidly approaching that same point uh, with the Iraq War, which uh, started in 2003, but really the the kind of uh, run up to it, the case, the justification was being made throughout 2002. Uh, so we're really approaching the 18th birthday, or maybe by some measures have already passed it, uh, the 18th birthday of the Iraq War as well. Uh, and I feel like the longer we get, farther we get away from that, uh, the more it fades to some degree from public consciousness. Uh, we are potentially, if you believe the polls and you think things are going to remain uh, relatively constant through Election Day, we are maybe about to elect uh, our first president since George W. Bush in 2004, uh, who at least actively supported the Iraq War. Uh, Barack Obama won the Democratic primary in 2008, quite explicitly, I think, uh, or to a large extent, because he had vocally opposed the Iraq War at the time, uh, and Hillary Clinton, of course, had uh, voted in favor of it, was in support of it. Uh, in 
2016, with uh, Hillary Clinton again running as the Democratic nominee, she ran into Donald Trump, uh, who claimed, uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest he was lying, but claimed that he had opposed the Iraq war the whole time and, uh, you know, had never thought it was a good idea. Um, and I don't want to say that played a major role in the 2016 election, but I don't think it was an insignificant uh, contributor uh, to at least keeping things close. Uh, and at any rate, uh, if Biden does hold on here and, and wins in November, he will be the first president uh, to uh, not necessarily embrace his past support of the Iraq war, but at least he hasn't tried to bury it like Trump did. Uh, and so we're going to have an active kind of person who who was, you know, everybody knows, everybody's aware uh, that he supported the Iraq war, and we're going to elect him president anyway. And that either speaks to uh, the strangeness of the moment, which is possible, uh, or maybe it speaks to, um, you know, a troubling, to me anyway, uh, tendency to kind of shove this war down the memory hole. We see this happening with a lot of the players who were involved in uh, uh, building the case for the war and getting us into the war who have been rehabilitated. Uh, over time, you know, this hasn't happened all in one lump uh, some, but certainly, you know, Colin Powell, uh, Condoleezza Rice, they're, they're, they've basically been welcomed back into polite society if they were ever shunned from it. I, I don't think they actually were. Uh, George Bush, George W. Bush, you know, he gives uh, Werther's candy to Michelle Obama and everybody loves him again. Uh, um, even Dick Cheney, I've seen people, you know, kind of uh, uh, looking back to Dick Cheney fondly. And part of this is sort of the madness uh, of the current situation and everybody comparing Donald Trump and Donald Trump's administration to what's come before and finding, uh, you know, finding it uh, some with some recency bias, I think, in effect, um, finding that things were better before and everybody was better before. And uh, we shouldn't look back at, at these people and judge them so harshly because look at what, look at how bad things could get, right? Uh, but some of it I do think uh, is that is is the fact that uh, we have allowed and we are allowing the the memory of the war and the uh, utter bizarreness of the push toward war uh, to fade from our collective consciousness. And so I think blowback, uh, which is a, a, just an excellent uh, you know excellent podcast, very well produced, very you know informative and uh, uh, well done. Uh, I think it comes at a a very valuable moment. Uh, in time. And hopefully uh, a lot of people are listening to it and a lot of people will either have their memories jogged or be learning for the first time just what went on uh, in 2002-2003 to get the United States. And prior, it goes back, you know, the United States relationship with Iraq goes back a long way. Uh, and, and even our relationship with just Saddam Hussein, uh, the villain of uh, the Iraq war, uh, goes back a long way. Uh, so I'm very pleased to be joined here uh, via Skype in a few moments uh, by the co-host of Blowback, uh, Brendan James, uh, who is a writer, producer, uh, podcaster, musician, does all of these things disturbingly well, uh, <laughs> disconcertingly well. Uh, he is going to be here along with uh, Noah Coolwin, uh, the co-host, his co-host, uh, who is... Uh, Contributing editor at Jewish Currents and associate editor at The Drift. He's written in uh, a number of places, also disturbingly well. 
And those guys have done, I think, uh, an excellent job and, and I think made a, a, a very important contribution, hopefully, uh, people are again. Hopefully, people are listening to it. An important contribution uh, to the capital D discourse uh, around U.S. foreign policy and uh, American politics uh, in this uh, this time of bizarreness. If you want to check out Blowback, uh, we will be explaining this again later in the interview, but I'll get my first pitch in now. Uh, you can find it anywhere you find uh, your favorite podcasts. Uh, it's being released uh, week by week uh, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, various other places, I'm sure. Um, but the whole show has already been produced. It's a 10-part show with some bonus episodes. Uh, and if you want to listen to the whole thing and you want to do it right now, you can go to Stitcher, uh, Stitcher Premium. Uh, that's stitcherpremium.com, S-T-I-T-C-H-E-R, premium.com. Uh, and sign up with the code BLOWBACK, all one word, B-L-O-W-B-A-C-K. Uh, and you get one free month of Stitcher Premium, and you can listen to the entire show, uh, plus some of the bonus episodes that are only going to be available uh, via Stitcher Premium. Uh, but if you don't want to sign up for Stitcher Premium, okay, uh, you can still listen to the podcast. As I said, it's being released uh, every week. I think uh, they just released... Uh, episode 5, which is a disturbingly depressing look at the media environment uh, surrounding the Iraq War. Uh, they just released that this week, uh, and uh, they'll be doing one every week uh, through the, the end of the series. And again, there will be some bonus episodes, uh, some of which will be available to the public, I understand, but uh, many of which uh, will only be available via Stitcher Premium. Uh, so with that, I'm going to get Noah and Brendan on the line here, and we'll get started. All right, I am, as I said in the introduction, being joined by Brendan James and Noah Coolin, the co-hosts of Blowback, a podcast about the Iraq War. Uh, I'm really excited to have these guys on the show and really excited to talk about the Iraq War because God knows we never talk about the Iraq War anymore. Um, so welcome, uh, Noah and Brendan. Uh, thank you for doing this. And uh, thanks for, yeah, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, so without, I don't want to go into like a ton of detail about the Iraq War because we want to get people uh, to listen to your podcast. Although I will say, spoiler alert, it works out really, really well. It goes very well. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's excellent. It's a, it's a classic, you know, kind of fairy tale. <laughs> really, a f just a feel good story. You know, a triumph of the little guy <laughs> over like you know yeah. the big bad guy. Yeah. Uh, so, so um, I guess my first question to kind of uh, ease us into the discussion uh, is talk talk to us about how this project came to be. Like, what was the impetus for you guys to do this uh, to do this project and and to make it about the Iraq War? If if those are two different things. Yeah, sure. So um, I was the one who had the sort of just like very like broad initial concept, which was that like, gee, it seems like a lot of people have kind of forgotten about the, you know, Iraq war because this was, you know, sort of at the at the height of all of the like, you know, George W. Bush uh, rehabilitation stuff like him going on Ellen, um, hanging out at the uh, funeral at the state funeral for H.W. Bush with the other presidents. And it just felt like pretty nauseating he he and gave michelle time, obama it, a piece of candy why where's your humanity here <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. 
And, you know, it was sort of like the, the very sort of obvious question that came to me was like, well, why don't we remember the, you know, humanity of all those, you know, Iraqis that we killed and of this country that we invaded and, and destroyed? And so it just sort of seemed kind of natural, like, oh, well, that, that could make like kind of an interesting, like straightforward narrative just to remind people about what happened. And naturally, like the first person I wanted to do it with was uh, Brendan. And so that's sort of where it began, just in the broad strokes, was sort of like in response to the kind of very uh, like really the idea was just to pull all this stuff out of the memory hole and back into, you know, public view. We had a romantic dinner at an Italian place near me <laughs> and Noah just asked me very casually, like, do, do, do you want to do a podcast about the Iraq war? And I, I think I say this in the first um, kind of um, introduction or the introduction episode of our series, episode zero, when we lay out why we're doing it. Um, I, initially, I wasn't sure if it was all that interesting of an idea because um, what we know now for sure is everyone agrees it was bad. You know, everyone agrees it was a big mistake, except for the real true holdouts among like I don't even I don't even know if Bill Crystal even wants to talk about it anymore. But there, besides them, um, everyone else knows it was it was a disaster, and there was no WMD and this and that. It's conventional <coughs> wisdom now, uh, which of course it was not at the time. That's why it happened. But uh, it, it's it seems like such a a, a unanimous um, consensus. So what's interesting about talking about that, but then, you know, what, what became more and more interesting, as Noah alluded to, was maybe not even so much that everyone has the same opinion about it now, but that everyone is trying to erase from our memories the evil <coughs> and persistent evil of the people who made it happen, the structures that allowed it to happen, and the social system that we live in that, that guarantees it would have happened and that will, something like it will happen again if we're not vigilant. So I, I then started to see, as, as you just mentioned, Michelle Obama giving Bush candy, Donald Rumsfeld on Colbert, um, this, this rehabilitation, and it, it, it made me think, okay, maybe there's a reason to go back and, and tell this story, because it's an amazing and horrifying and at times funny and absurd um, chronicle um, that had never been put in a serialized kind of narrative format before. When you started, I think, Noah, you said, you know, you, you thought it would be interesting to just kind of put this in a straightforward narrative, but it's it's not a straightforward narrative. And, and the, the the story of the war and how we got there uh, can't is, you know, of necessity, uh, not a straightforward narrative. When you set out, did you were you prepared for how far back you were going to have to go to get to like to get to the 1950s and even before that to like really get to the origins of this story was it was it a surprise that things you, you had to go back that far or uh, were you ready for that i'll give this one to brennan just because he was the one who started the research on those episodes and you know sort of organized them well as you say derek it was almost challenging to think how to put all this together because i mean uh, you know your listeners might know me i used to produce chapo that's a talk show you know, there are moments in Chapo where, of course, uh, it goes into history and a narrative or whatever, but this was a different thing. This was going to be a limited run telling one concrete story. So I sort of arbitrarily said, I'll take the first half, you take the second half uh, to Noah. And so we, we'll, if we ever do this again, it'll be interesting to see if we choose to do that again. But I, uh, I, I thought, okay, well, if I got the first half, how far back do we want to go? Because blowback as the title which we can talk about, you know, whether that's actually kind of a misleading title, the concept of blowback. Um, it's not just about the blowback that came after we invaded in 2003. It's about the, 
the invasion itself was a um, the latest in a series of blowbacks or blowback effects. We had to talk about the um, the not very well known history of American involvement in meddling and uh, criminal activity inside of Iraq before two thousand and three, uh, and that that just that just spooled out the more and more we researched because I thought, okay, do we start with Gulf War? But in order, in order to understand why we're there in the Gulf War, you got to understand the 80s when we were supporting Saddam. But in order to understand why we were supporting Saddam, you got to understand our relationship with the Middle East and the Arab world uh, during the Cold War and so on and so forth. So we, we, we start with a very, very brief history of the British presence in Iraq and move as quickly as we can through this very important stuff because ultimately we want to get to the meat of the, the issue. But we have to start, I think, at the t at least the, the top of the twenty first, sorry, the twentieth century, and uh, that was quite fun. And in fact, we had to cut out a lot of really interesting stuff yeah. that just it just it just we had to keep the narrative moving. But there's all kinds of stuff that was that that is fascinating and that we we try to point people toward with our um, sources cited page, you know, on on the website or whatever because it's. As you can imagine, as you, as you well know, Derek. I mean, it's a very, it's a very um, uh, dense and and rich and fascinating uh, history. That it's it's yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's a lot to to handle. Um, wh what did you? Uh, was there anything that you found that didn't make it into the show that you were uh, that was really like what was the one of the, like the most stunning kind of uh, or interesting thing that you guys uh, uncovered? Um, it's, it's, it's probably going to be a little tricky for me to remember at this point. Cause we had, we had a lot of stuff we had to cut. Um, but I remember in those early, as far as the early episodes went, there was a lot of stuff regarding the, um, oil, uh, cartel and it's, it's, um, schemes and, and games it was playing in the Middle East. That was very fascinating that, uh, uh much of it I got from a book called Carbon Democracy by Timothy Mitchell, which uh, I can recommend. It did a good job at specifically focusing on Iraq um, as the site of the typical imperial and, um, you know, multinational shenanigans that went on around oil. And, and I learned a lot, and I wanted to bring a bit more of that into the early part of the show. But then also the Iraqi Communist Party, uh, th there was um, more about that in, in the earlier bits that was very fascinating because Iraq had a very strong Communist Party, which you couldn't say about a lot of the, um, uh, about some of its neighbors. Iran, for example, did, didn't have a, a terribly strong um, uh, Marxist uh, party. But in Iraq, they were very, very powerful. And in fact, it's, it, it's uh, an important detail um, uh, to understand who was coming to power before Saddam and, in fact, why we loved the Ba'ath Party so much and supported them in the 60s onward um, and, and why Saddam got to where he was was because his party was the party of anti-communism. Uh, and so there was an entire book. We almost had the author on, but he couldn't do it. There's an entire book about the, uh, the Iraqi C uh, uh, Communist Party, which I have to note was um, abbreviated as the ICP, <laughs> um, that uh, that that also uh, w could have been a whole show in and of itself for maybe a smaller audience of people who, who would want to know about that. Uh, yeah. Um, Sorry. Go ahead. No. Uh, one thing that I think about of it, which is like less something that like I uncovered, and and is more um, something that like you know 
would have been nice to fit in, but really just like in kind of the narrative framing that we that we sort of pursued and and the and you know as Brennan said like in, in order to keep going is I think like I would have liked to have like unpacked a little bit some of like the like Iranian interests and kind of talk like you know not in like the like like to kind of try and present like a because a lot of this feels like we're presenting you know a version of this of events that differs from how like conventional media sources do it and i would have loved to have like branched out a little bit further and talk about like you know like well why does like iran like you know have a hand in iraqi politics and so on um because you know one of the pieces that i uh did some of the research for and that like really stunned me away when i was researching it was the iran iraq war and you know sort of dating like the the US backed atrocities against Iran that were committed during the course of that war it sort of like helps explain a little bit what they're thinking may be you know 20 30 years onward uh yeah, yeah i mean the the that's a, a part of the story like a, a, the Iran Iraq war the sort of uh, you guys say this in the podcast was sort of like the public position of the United States was like oh gee, this is bad, and, and boy, we hope you guys resolve this. But in fact, uh, on the ground in the Middle East, the United States was actively uh, supporting Saddam Hussein, and there were operations, there were military operations in the Persian Gulf uh, against Iranian interests. So it's it's uh, one of many parts of this story that uh, sort of, you know, you have to kind of push past the uh, the public narrative and get to, to what really happened. 40, 40 American... Uh, crewmen died, 40 troops died because the Iraqis accidentally shot one of our ships uh, in the Gulf because we were beaming intelligence to them <laughs> and they got confused. So so there was like an actual, you know, what would what you would expect to be in the Reagan administration, uh, a real punishment coming up for Iraq or for Saddam, this tin pot dictator in the Arab world. And guess what? Nothing happened. He didn't get, uh, he didn't even get billed for it. Um, that's how uh, incredibly uh, not disinterested we were. We were actively fighting on his side. And even when 50 Americans got smoked, uh, we, we, we said, oh, that's just the price of doing business. So, yeah, and we talk about that in episode one, for example. I, I, and I have to say, I, I, I didn't know about that event going into it. And uh, even some people who I know are big, uh, big heads about you know this part of the world and American um, history there, uh, they didn't know that one either. I think a lot of people know about the the jetliner that we Ye destroyed in uh, the Iranian jetliner, but I don't know if they know about the the USS Stark, uh, the, which is the ship that uh, Saddam accidentally uh, blew up. It's actually I do want to mention uh, Brendan brings that up a, a similar incident for me that had like uh, you know a bit after but during the first Gulf War that kind of uh, that I did not know about before looking into this was the testimony of Nayira in building the case for Gulf War which was a member of Congress basically smuggled in a woman who they said was a Kuwaiti woman. <laughs> Uh, or like, you know, girl who had been, you know, been in a hospital and seen Iraqi soldiers commit horrible atrocities when they invaded Kuwait. And it later came out the entire testimony was fabricated and that she was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the U.S. Right. And like and, and that they it was part of like a multimillion dollar political uh, like their strategy masterminded by like a political a U.S. based political communications firm. Th then, then that same guy, this is something, now you've got me going, Derek. Uh, that same guy, the ambassador, became the Minister of Information or something? Minister of, of Information, I think was the title, or maybe Minister of Interior. Um, and during the 90s, he was the one who brought the uh, supposed evidence to Americans that Saddam had tried to, quote, assassinate George H.W. Bush after he had left office, which 
we mentioned on the show, but that uh, to your point, I would have loved to do an entire episode about. Very, very likely did not happen. There has never been any direct evidence showing that the Iraqis planned or tried to assassinate uh, George H.W. Bush, which, you know, while it was certainly a big deal in the 90s, uh, and we bombed Iraq over it, even though Clinton admitted he didn't even have the full case, um, it, it kept cropping up, you know? It was just one of those things, like another thing Saddam did that we're not going to even argue about. And so in 2003, you know, it, uh, a lot of people, a lot of liberals made fun of Bush even because he was just trying to get Saddam back for trying to kill his dad. But he didn't even try to kill his dad. We, <laughs> we got to Iraq and looked through all of the ministry of you know, torture and, you know, evil Saddam stuff. And there was not one single sheet of paper of a very, very, very well-kept, uh, you know, collection of their plans over the years and, and their operations. Not one showed anything about wanting to take, uh, take out H.W. Bush. And so the guy who fed that to Americans, to the American government, was the guy whose daughter gave us the fake intel for the Gulf War. That was one of the things that that um, I didn't know. Like I, I had heard that. I mean, I've I've seen the the subsequent reporting that, for example, like the, uh, the, the Iraqi soldiers taking babies out of incubators and taking the incubators. Like that story uh, was bullshit. But I didn't know that it had been propagated by the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador. That was like uh, a very eye-opening detail Oops. that you guys brought up uh, on the show. And then, of course, the right. assassination attempt on Bush. I remember that. I mean, I remember we shot missiles and, you know, it was uh, uh, one of these, like, multiple kind of... If you think about them in, in isolation, just bizarre, this bizarre decade where we just, like... Every once in a while, we would shoot some missiles at Iraq, and this was considered normal. Like this was just a normal thing that the United States yep. did. And one of the, you know, one of the the episodes was about this supposed assassination attempt, and I, I had not really ever considered whether it was an actual story or not. But as you say, there's uh, there's no evidence. Uh, that it actually happened. I mean, th these are the kinds of things like you mentioned uh, the the shooting down of Iran Air uh, Flight 655 uh, in 1988, which killed almost three 300 people. Um, the the captain of the the U.S. naval vessel in the Gulf that did that was later given a medal, uh, supposedly not for shooting down the civilian airliner, but who knows? Uh, um, and and yeah. you know that it, it, that's one of the, these things, the, those things where. Uh, I think people are aware of it, and people are aware that it was an atrocity, and and uh, that it has had some impact on Iranian feelings about the United States. Uh, but they don't necessarily know, like why the U.S. Navy was even in the Gulf at that point and on high enough alert that they would be looking for uh, an aircraft coming out of Iran as a potential threat. Uh, and that the reason for that is that we were there to to fight the war in the Gulf on behalf of uh, Saddam Hussein. So there's a lot, I think, to mm -hmm. this story that that people um, don't know. That's episode one. Yeah, and this is all episode one. I mean, like, I, I yeah, I don't want to like get too deep into the the Gulf War stuff because I want people to uh, yeah. listen to the the podcast. But this is just like episode one, and episode two which was, uh, I think, the most eye-opening for me because I grew up uh, with the Gulf War. Like, I was, in, I was in high school when we fought the Gulf War, and uh, I was right at the age where you're sort of like, uh, you know, America, fuck yeah, and, you know, you see all these videos mm -hmm. and CNN's covering it, and it just looked like, uh, hey, we're saving Kuwait, and this is great, and, you know, we're doing a, a, a noble thing, and it was a very potent narrative. Since then... 
uh, you know, and in the context of what's happened after that, you realize that the Gulf War was the beginning of a process, or not, maybe not the beginning, but it was certainly a key kind of inflection point in a process yeah. that led to crippling sanctions that that killed hundreds of thousands of people, probably. Uh, but what yep. was interesting to me about the, your episode on the Gulf War, which is episode two, uh, was how much of the case for the Gulf War and the preparation for the Gulf War uh, was almost like the first kind of the, a model for how we got into the the invasion of Iraq from the building of the coalition to the media environment so t maybe if you could talk a little bit about that and uh, whether that was something that kind of surprised you to 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 learn yeah i i remember seeing a parallel obviously between the story of how we assembled the coalition in in 1991 versus how Bush the Younger failed to assemble a coalition in 2002. Um, but the methods were the same in both cases, which was uh, bribes and threats. There, there, there was no um, statesman-like kind of noble tradition being employed in the first case of his dad, which I think is the kind of way we talk about it and that the media um, likes to paint it, as that his dad knew what he was doing and there were you know, smart men in three-piece suits discussing, you know, the best way to unite the world against a tyrant. And it's like, no, we th we pulled all of Yemen's aid when they voted against in, uh, in, in intervening. Um, and, and everyone else knew that that, that went for them if, if they dared to step out of line. Cuba obviously also voted against it. We already were, you know, doing our, our Cold War against Castro. Um, and then the people who did vote... Uh, with us got lots of nice treats and um, and uh, uh, geopolitical rewards. Uh, and so the, the there's a parallel there with the UN, the only difference being that George H.W. Bush was better at bribing and threatening people than the Bush administration was. Um, and of course, um, Noah can talk about the media side, but as far as the shenanigans deployed, by, by the administration, censoring the press was arguably even more intense during the Gulf War than during the Iraq War. Um, we talk about that a bit. But, but, but also just the lies that were told. We mentioned Naira, that testimony. You know, that was the private sector and, the, you know, these PR firms or these consultant groups working with the U.S. government, essentially, to sell a war. Um, it wasn't as elaborate a case as the WMD case, but it was just as false. Um, and, uh, and so there's, there's a lot of... I mean, you know, you could just imagine... George W. Bush pointing at his dad in 2003 uh, saying, I learned it from you. I learned it from watching you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think to elaborate a, a little bit on that, one of the things that, you know, George W. Bush didn't go to the U.N. and do the same kinds of, you know, even attempt the same kind of dipl uh, diplomatic cover in part because, like, you know, he no longer needed to. 9-11 was in the rearview mirror, and the case that they were choosing to make was that, Saddam Hussein had a hand in 9/11, and thus, you know, like, like you, like your goodwill demands that we do this, and we have enough clout to get away with this at this moment. Blah blah blah. And the media sort of like, like, bought that, you know, as as we explain in the show in, in greater detail, um, the media kind of uncritically bought into that. Um, and in, you know, I think where the sort of parallels with the Gulf War um, really sharply come into play is the degree to which that they abetted, um, especially in the initial stages. Uh, what the government line was, like in the Nayyira testimony. And then on the other hand, I also think that you have um, 
when you get to the actual invasion and the war itself, the Gulf War created a model for how American military engagements with any serious amount of boots on the ground could be covered in the future. There, you know, like like there, and there's also with the, what the presence of the American media could do. For example, a bunch, you know, a CNN team was famously stuck in Baghdad, and it was later dramatized in an HBO movie. And while it's presented as this kind of like you know bold, like like you know like fuck you to the Pentagon about like staying in Baghdad, I think what, what what's sort of more salient is the idea that it transformed a war zone into something that could just become like entertainment, that like for like riveting drama for people at home, kind of disconnected from any of like the real salient humanitarian or political questions and that to me is something that like is a behavior that becomes very much part of the problem during the course or becomes like a a significant issue during the iraq war where you know whereas before you had the defense department censoring you know like literally censoring american press reports in baghdad which you had instead over the course of the iraq war and this is something that we talk about in our first bonus episode with the journalist star jamail is that they actually had this like they created this embed program so that, you know, they would take all the major journalists and just have them ride around with U.S. soldiers. And, you know, unlike Vietnam, for example, when New York Times reporters and other people would way more freely wander outside of where, you know, where U.S. soldiers weren't and talk to the Viet Cong and talk to Vietnamese people, um, they were kept on a much tighter leash within Iraq. And that absolutely, you know, I think that that sort of like behavior and like that attitude of press man- management is a great example yeah. of something like a part of a tradition that emerges from the Gulf War only to resurface, you know, with even, to an even greater consequence during the Iraq War. And just as little Easter eggs, you get to see a lot of people, a lot of familiar faces, Wolf Blitzer, Katie Couric, um, that they, they they were kind of getting their start and uh uh, you, you obviously you're only hearing them if you we've done some video trailers that you can see on Twitter where I actually uh, you can see the footage as well. But um, it's it's I don't want to say nice or funny or cute to see them uh, in 91 because it's not. But they they are you know building their career covering a war just like Noah said as entertainment, and that was always the end point as anything in America is is monetizing. Uh, you know, something horrific and and disgusting, um, just as CNN in the pursuit of quote unquote you know truth and um, getting you the information you need to know, it it was just absolutely laying the groundwork for for the the um, meaningless and ultimately uh, uh, you know disastrous type of news coverage we see covering any war now, where it's played as you know an HBO miniseries basically. Do you think there's anything uh, to be said for the nature of war, like now, you know, the kind of war that we saw happening in the Gulf War and then, you know, certainly since then, uh, as as compared with the way the fighting was done in the Vietnam War? And basically, I mean, you know, it's much more kind of distant air aerial bombardment campaigning that kind of stuff Mm. um i remember i mean i i remember watching the cnn coverage and i remember the first days uh of the war and the airstrikes the gulf war i'm I'm talking about the the airstrikes and Mm -hmm. you know as you said there was that cnn team that was in baghdad i think bernard shaw was the uh the main anchor yep yep and like there were moments uh, during the airstrikes where, you know, you'd have like Bernard Shaw, I'm going to get under the table now. And it's, you know, there's bombs going off all over. And I mean, you, you got, you start white knuckling and like you were watching a, a you know, a, 
you know, a movie or something like a really engrossing movie. Uh, yeah. And you felt like nervous for these people, but you felt nervous for the CNN guys. Like it, it never yeah, occurred yeah. Exactly. psychologically. Exactly. Uh, well, okay. These guys are like scared and they're hiding under the table, but there are people out in the street getting blown up by these, you know, by these airstrikes. Do you think there's any difference in the sense that Vietnam was maybe a more on the ground kind of, uh, war that that to cover it in the media meant like really getting americans you know focusing attention on what was actually happening whereas with the gulf war because of the nature of it you instead got to see these videos of stuff blowing up and there was no personal kind of connection there i mean i think that that's exactly right and i think that you know one way that i would sort of reposition it as like a way of thinking about the vietnam war is that you know the Vietnam War was like a prolonged commitment of many more U.S. troops, um, both in raw numbers and and as a proportion of the population than either the Gulf War or the Iraq War. And sort of like I think the like the power that journalists had there and their sort of presence, um, you know, it was it was like I mean, it was one thing. It was much more expansive than either the Gulf War or the Iraq War. But I think that like the nature of that kind of conflict was one that kind of, you know, it made sense that David Halberstam was, you know, poking around South Vietnam and asking people questions that directly contradicted what the military officers were saying. And, you know, there was a general draft and people were, this war was unpopular already. And people were like, you know, expressing outrage over that fact. And I think that with the Gulf War, it ended extremely quickly and there wasn't really any kind of substantial danger at any point posed to like large numbers of U.S. troops. Obviously, in Iraq, this would take a bit of a different turn years later. But I think that like that's sort of, you know, there's a reason that these kinds of wars are made for television in that way. They start the they time the bombing campaigns for when people are eating dinner at home and they make it very, very clear to people that, you know, you're white knuckling it and you're writing it, but that ultimately it's for a good cause and that the consequences of this, you know, they're nothing like those really bad wars that we used to do. Remember that one? Like Vietnam or something. Right. It was it was a way to, I mean, as you, as you both of you pointed out, you have both the actual nature of the war, which is largely just an overwhelming force, um, uh, essentially holding a country at arm's length, you know, and, and kicking them without ever really getting getting any any scratches um on on you yourself but then the the greater and tighter grip and more intelligent ways of controlling the press that the government used the u.s government used um both of those things in concert i think gave you a much more sterilized marketable and ultimately like not troubling picture of war that americans were ultimately happy to to, to drink down because you go, oh, okay, well, yeah, there's still going to be wars, but we're always going to win and it's going to make us feel like we're cleaning up the town and that we're world cop and that, that that's what we should be doing. And um, it's, it's a, it works out for both the private sector, um, be it the media or the, or the defense contractors and the state and the government itself. If you guys, this is where I, I, I want to move forward now to the, to the Iraq war. Thinking about, what got us into the Iraq war is almost to me like a madness rune because wherever, like whatever you focus on, like, was it about nine 11 or was it about WMD or was it about, uh, Saddam's bad behavior? Like every direction you can take, it leads you in like a thousand other 
it's like oh wait well then that's not enough like you have to add this other factor in and like uh it just gets incredibly expansive to me uh, having done this having done this project now looking at at the origins and the the kind of u.s involvement in the war uh, or the the start of it um if you had to do like the elevator pitch for why we got into the iraq war like you've got uh you know a minute with somebody to explain it do you think you could do it and what would it be if I had an elevator pitch, I would say we got into the Iraq War because an empire that had been attacked found plenty of justification to fully unload its um, military might in a way that it, it had not really had a great reason to in, in the 90s and make an example for the rest of the world that it would continue to shape the world and would actually do it in a much more aggressive way than it had been doing recently and that everyone ha had to get in line and understand that this is the way things are going to work forever. As Bush said, be with us or against us and remove any kind of ambiguity that persisted in, in the 90s, you know, in that way. I mean, yeah, I think to me, like the way I would sum it up is that like, you know, like, like I, I similarly agree with Brendan that like the important part of it is always like start with like that it's about an empire and it's like, an empire like like you know manufactured a struggle between good and evil to like obscure the fact that like it brought like devastation on itself that to me um is one of the things that we sort of i guess in the process of doing this that became pretty clear to me um especially with the stuff that you know brendan brought in his research to the uh to the show um from the earlier part of the phase was that this war was really presented as a you know, like it was presented as an opportunity to like create like a like to, to wage a certain kind of morality. And that sort of like totalizing thing gave cover to just it gave cover and excuse and it, and it hid even before we ever invaded a lot of really ugly shit. Yeah, because you have to keep your your psychology clean. We talked about this with Naomi Klein in our last bonus episode is that America always needs to clean the slate, start out innocent in whatever conflict is currently going on. And in order to do that, you need to have a very, very simple story to tell everybody about why we're about to blow up the world again. It can never be because, well, it turns out we did this and it's biting us in the ass. Or, well, it turns out we did this and we actually wanted there to be a conflict. Um, it, it has to be an aggressor who is pr pr preferably has a mustache so that he can be like Hitler and that we need to put down in order to keep the world safe, just like we did in World War II. Every war is World War II in some way, shape, or form, and we are always the you know flawed but ultimately morally just world cop. And so you can put that Democrat, Republican, Obama did that a bunch. Um, Trump has uh, wanted to try and play that role in certain ways, but has basically just inherited the Obama agenda. Bush and his guys obviously set the set the you know next hundred years um in place due to their desire to 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 you know really nail that pageant and it's 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 pageantry it's a it's a horrifying um uh carnal pageantry that gets a lot of people killed but that's essentially what it is because as soon as you start admitting that this is happening because of blowback or whatever you want to call it you call into question the entire purpose or utility of the empire to your people at home um, so it's, it's, I think it's about the memory hole. It's always about wiping the slate clean, which is obviously one reason we're doing the show. But one of the reasons the war even happened is because there weren't podcasts to stop the war <laughs> at the time. 
I mean, I'm kidding about that part, but that's, that's, that's not true. But, 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 but that, but that more broadly speaking, that there was this exact same process of rehabilitating, not even a particular administration, but American empire writ large at the time. Give, give me uh, your sense again, having, having done this project now, what sticks with you in terms of, uh, like you look around at the political environment now, Donald Trump's in the White House. Uh, we're botching our response to an international pandemic. Uh, the Democrats are about to nominate. Uh, and if the polls are right, he's about to win uh, the presidency, somebody who voted for and in fact was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty staunchly uh, not just not just voted for, but pushed, you know, for uh, the war. Really argued for the the Gulf War, which will be a first. Uh, you know, Donald Trump pretended that he didn't support the war in 2016, and Barack Obama, you know, didn't did you know was vocally against the war and, and won in 2008. Uh, so this will be the first time we we potentially, if it if it happens, uh, elect a, a president who supported the war since. George W. Bush in 2004, you know, in his reelection. Um, what what about the current kind of political and media really landscape? Uh, do you do you look at now and having gone through this, the research for this and done this show, think, man, you know, that's you can draw a straight line from from this stuff to where we are now. One thing I'll, I'll like is to give like a sort of narrow response, and then and then I'll let Brendan add um, on. Um, but one thing that I think about a lot is that I think that there's a very straight line through the Obama years as well, in which there was just sort of like a complete dereliction of of accountability, um, you know, in a very specific, in a very, you know, in like a, in a you know, like a legal sense. Um, you know, you look at the Iraq War and you look at say the torture memos and you look at the policy from on down that was created that enabled all sorts of horrific abuses like those at Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo, um, both in Iraq and, and, you know, and beyond. And that the Obama administration and obviously the Bush administration wasn't going to investigate its own mess, but that the Obama administration declined not to do that. And then when you get to something like the financial crisis and Eric Holder decides that not a single, you know, like financial executive at any like, like high ranking executive at any major firm uh, has to be actually prosecuted. I think that you sort of like I think that what the Iraq war calcified in a very real way is this idea that like nobody ever has to be held accountable for anything. And in, in at least in politics and in public life. And that to me, you know, like like there is you can argue that this trend came before. You could say that it's baked into what it means, you know, what like the, the post-World War II order anyway. And, and, and that's just yeah. the way it goes. But I think that the Iraq war, just given the extent of the crime and given the kind of blatant way that it was carried out and, and you know, just how much shit we know about what was done that was so grossly illegal and inhumane. Like, to me, it's just sort of like a, if you can pull that off and nobody gets in trouble, then like, what the fuck is a pandemic? You know, like, like everybody can, you know, like they can like murder, like, like you know, 200,000 people with death through incompetence. And it's like, well, we already had a dry run for that, which is something that Brendan had pointed out to me. And that dry run yeah. was Iraq. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, and we again, I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm plugging it too clumsily but we we did discuss a lot of this type of stuff with our uh interview with naomi klein who had a lot of great answers that are probably better than what we're about to say so listen to that uh if you can but it's uh there's a lot of continuities some explicit some implicit from the bush administration up until now uh both connecting them to the obama 
style and the Trump style. I think most most of all, most simply, I, you could just say that we're living in the world that the Bush administration created. Um, the agenda, broadly speaking, has been set by the Bush administration. The lack of action on climate change can be traced to the Bush administration. The Now I'm not, again, problems in America existed before the Bush administration just as problems existed before Trump, which is the delusion of liberals now is that he's an aberration. We, of course, accept this when it applies to Bush as well. But as far as kicking off the 21st century, that was them. That, 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 was, that was the pivot point the Bush administration were in control of. So climate change being ignored, Bush administration, creating a probably 200-year conflict that's going to be raging between the quote-unquote West and the uh, quote-unquote Islamic or Arab world. That was them. Uh, as Noah said, creating a, 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 a promise of... Uh, no accountability in which you can uh, do a war and not get prosecuted. You can torture and not get prosecuted. That comes from them. So um, the Obama administration followed this general agenda in a more, um, you know, clever and streamlined way. Their body count might have been s smaller, but they expanded wars. Uh, they Rather, they expanded the global war on terror um, as, as you well know and your listeners probably know, in a lot of different ways that they would never have done if, if a different type of course were taken than the Bush administration's. Um, they were simply inheriting it and saying, all right, what can we do with this? The Trump administration does the same. Um, so th this type of stuff you can trace back. Um, and I just want to say one, one thing uh, about Obama not being you know, the president who opposed the Iraq war. Of course, that's true. He did oppose it vocally when it was happening, but he voted for, with, except, with one exception, every bill to fund the war when he actually became a senator. So I sometimes chafe at him being described as the anti-Iraq war guy because once he actually got into the Senate, he funded it every chance he could get. I don't really count that as someone who's anti-war. But... Um, that's uh, a uh, bugbear uh, that's more peripheral. Anyway. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, there's a certain level of, like, I don't want to get attacked for not supporting the troops. Like, I don't think they should be there, but that, I think that's the rationale that, that gets employed. But yes, I sure. mean, you're right. They're still, at the, sure. at the end of the day, they're funding the war. Um, the thing that... yeah. That's what the Democrats did. That that's what Pelosi did when she got Congress in two thousand and six. Yeah. She she campaigned with with Shindy Sheehan and all these you know war moms and and veterans saying trust us we're we're going to end it and then they just got in there and right. continued to fund it. I mean I'm, I would blame her more than Obama. He's just one senator. She was the leadership. Um, but that that that's the that that's a true crime. Um, I was just saying Obama was more of a kind of fake anti-war guy. Um, I have to say, like, I, we talked a lot about the, the episode two, which was on the Gulf War. The, the, the thing that, like, really hit me uh, in terms of this question about continuity was the clip that you had of uh, Bernie Sanders <laughs> complaining about the Pentagon budget. Uh, and it's like nothing has changed mm. except that at the time of the Gulf War, he was complaining about the Pentagon budget being like $270 billion as opposed to $750 yeah, billion. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, man, like this is just nothing. Nothing has changed. Um, <laughs> yeah. I want to ask you about the, the media environment. Um, and I know it's something we've touched on uh, already in this interview. But uh, like your episode, uh, episode five, which was the, the one, uh, your interview with uh, Will Menneker, and uh, where you guys really talked about a lot of the media clowning that went into this. 
Um, I thought he, you, you uh, he made a couple of good points, which were that uh, the media environment in which uh, the Iraq War, you know, kind of you know got so much jingoistic coverage was um, a reaction in some sense to two things. One of which was Vietnam, and I think there was a desire in the the U.S. media to say, uh, you know, hey, we're like really proud of our coverage of Vietnam, but we're also sorry that the Pentagon, like the government got mad at us. So we, we want to make it up to you guys. And the yeah. second thing was that, that these people, a lot of them had, had just spent uh, eight years basically uh, covering the president of the United States, you know, using a cigar to, to stimulate an intern. And they were like mortified, I think at, at the, the, the level of reporting that, that they had to do. And I think they were just like, so, um, so pleased in a sense to get something like as meaty as a war and a chance to really like show off their chops, and they jumped into it in a in a very gung ho way. Um, that said, uh, I I think that a lot of those tendencies are still there. The tendency to sort of uh, uncritically regurgitate, uh, you know, what you're told by the government. Um, on the flip side, I do think there is a stronger tendency on the part of the people who are uh, supposed to consume this media project to be skeptical of that stuff. So I look at uh, a story that just came out recently about you know the this uh, supposed alleged Russian bounty program in Afghanistan where they were paying the Taliban, yes. and like that story is very. Mm-hmm. Gulf War to me. It's like we got some anonymous intelligence guys telling us a story and we're going to give it to you like full bore. We're just going to take dictation basically on this and, and report it to you. But its reception, I think, has been more skeptical, uh, more widely skeptical uh, than a lot of the stuff that, that um, you know, in the public, I should say, not not in maybe political circles, uh, than a lot of the stuff that was reported around the Gulf War. What what do you think has changed, and what is still the same uh, in your minds about the the media environment? Um, I mean, I, I would say that like one thing, you know, you're you're absolutely right to seize on that story, and that's something that Brendan and I have actually talked about, like just how insane that whole situation was. In part because, you know, just to elaborate a little bit. It's it's not very clear to me that this bounty program, if it exists, and that's a gigantic if that veers into the territory of I, I doubt it um, quite strongly, is that it's like, you know, like, what are we supposed to take away from that? Like, what's the implication supposed to be? What's supposed to be the response there? Is it supposed to be that we're suddenly like to begin a new proxy is like, are we supposed to get into a new proxy war with uh, like against Russia? Like, what's the like, didn't we pay the ta- like What didn't we used to have a relationship with the <laughs> Taliban? Weren't we negotiating with the Taliban pretty recently? I mean, there's all of these kinds of like contextual bits of information. Well, never didn't, didn't we pay the forerunners pieces? of the Taliban to kill Russian soldiers? <laughs> yeah. I, I won't. Didn't we literally? Didn't we literally invent <laughs> the Taliban <laughs> as a political force? So it's like it's it's it is quite psycho to me. Like like that. Like you're absolutely right. And I think though that like there has been some kind of uh, conditioning of the media class people too, because well, this is you know comparatively small fry. When it came to something like Venezuela. 
um, and like this insane case that they're that the that the like people in Congress and the Defense Department and the Trump administration try to ram through the media and to get like a coup going with Guaido or whatever. Uh, you know, like a bunch of media people bought like and, and frankly, like, too many people who claim to be on the left also bought into like you know just some like yep. frank bullshit as well. But at the same time, it died down fairly quickly, and it's because there was still not even anything resembling like the frothing hype that you had for the Iraq War. So I will say that like I do think that the American media, while it's still sucks and the news media is still largely you know apathetic if not encouraging of you know i guess we would call warmongering um i do think that they've like learned a few things about you know how easily the american government can lead us into like like an an objective quagmire that said i think you're Mm -hmm. absolutely right as well and i think this is the most important point is that like you know the american people like they saw what happened in Iraq, like, you know, and, and the only way they were able to get into Iraq was because they had a tragedy like 9-11 to make them forget about Vietnam. Like, people are not predisposed to wanting to wage war in these, like, aggressive ways. And there's a reason that, like, the American government has shifted, you know, in part because of changes initially adopted during the Iraq war into waging war in these kinds of more discreet ways that don't require as many boots on the ground and that can be, you know, like, kind of hidden from American view and, continue, and, and to, you know, like, to help keep Americans like as unaware and as uh, sedate as possible when it comes to these kinds of matters. To truly open the portal, you know, into the Hellraiser dimension and do something like the Iraq war again, you would need, I think to, to juice up um, popular uh, enthusiasm. You would need some kind of attack uh, that is a little bit, a little bit more hardcore than this chintzy bounty hunter shit uh, that clearly is being used as a pretext. They're, they're floating it. They're saying, can we get more uh, spicy over there uh, in Eastern Europe and, and, and with Russia? But it's just, it didn't really satisfy anybody. 9-11 was, um, without sounding gross about it, because I'm not the one who fucking did the Iraq war, it was the, uh, it was the dream uh, pretext for, for the Bush administration to, to do something um, like start a global war on terror and invade Iraq. Um, and you need something like that, I, I think, uh, especially after Iraq going so badly. But they're, they're trying. I mean, I really do think that they're trying. And even if they don't want a full-blown, when I say they, I mean both the intelligence agencies and any sympathetic media hogs, because I think that they, they ultimately, they like that stuff. They may not want a whole nother like Iraq war, but they want some tension. They want a confrontation. And... Uh, you have to just continually uh, hope that they're denied that um, by the flimsiness of their evidence or the um, just the I don't know the hand of God or something because uh, we, we we could get you know some some stupid attack. That's why Soleimani. I think all of our ears perked up when that happened, you know, because that was a genuine assassination attempt in a country that you know was caught right between this low-level proxy war of the United States in, in, in Iran. That could have kicked off some serious stuff. But even then, ultimately, the heart wasn't in it. Um, so I'm rambling a little bit, but I, 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 of course, I mean, I agree with Noah that there's, there's they, they can't just will it into existence. Um, and especially during the Trump administration, you know, every now and again, you think you're going to get something Syria, Venezuela, Iran, but... Um, the, the, there needs to be a, a couple more factors involved, factors like we discuss in our show, I think, for the media to fully run away with something. Because the media are auxiliary. You know, I, I wouldn't be a good 
um, socialist or whatever or Marxist if, if I thought that the media could just make stuff happen by covering it a lot. Um, they are ultimately an auxiliary force. They, they cannot cause things to happen. They can just juice them or be in a, you know, a big tank of gasoline to pour on what's already happening. Um, so thank God, because of course they, they want these conflicts more often. Well, they want, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, one of the, the points you made very well in the, the, the episode with Will was, um, you know, there was this, uh, there was reporting at the time about WMDs and, and, you know, that, that was skeptical of the, the line coming out of the administration. And, uh, certainly there was reporting about the supposed role that Saddam played in, uh, the nine 11 attacks that, uh, was skeptical of that line. But when it came time for, uh, you know, let's say, uh, meet the press and Tim Russert, who was the most egregious, the one that sticks in my, my brain the most, uh, you know, it came time to book a show like that. Uh, the choices you have are, you know, do I want to have Dick Cheney on to to tell uh, for the second or the like, you know, eighth time to spin this exciting, intriguing yarn about uh, Mohammed Atta meeting with Iraqi intelligence in Prague and how that's been confirmed, even though it was total bullshit. Uh, or do I want to have a reporter on from like Knight Ritter to kind of dryly unfortunately go through the case of why the administration is making this stuff up and the question becomes who's going to watch what and more people are going to watch dick cheney come on and tell that cool spy story uh, than are gonna gonna pay attention to this yeah. reporter so i'm gonna book dick cheney and that's you know that's the same you know yeah. that's still in place if anything uh, you know, now we have a, a cable news environment where, uh, you know, as you guys noted with with the Gulf War, back in the Gulf War, I mean, CNN was like mostly reporting, like people were on the ground. And I don't want to like sing CNN's praises or anything. Uh, but now it's all studio shows. It's all talking heads, uh, you know, spouting the the same crap. And, and the the desire is to, you know, get people on who are going to say stuff that that uh brings eyeballs so i yeah i think i mean <laughs> look derek I, I look derek i hear your concerns but joanne reed is going to be in the apm slot on msnbc <laughs> and she will remain vigilant against any warmongering i i, I hope sure. she brings her body language person back on because that was that was fantastic yeah. television. <laughs> you know you know what's funny about that is Noah, you found this clip, is in the Gulf War. There's a clip, I believe it's CNN, where they have on some fucking psychologist to say, is Saddam Hussein depressed? How can we tell if whether he's about to, you know, like, self-harm? Oh, right yeah, now? it was like and, a whole thing. And, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, like, they, it was literally, those are the questions that they were also asking about um, if he's an evil person and if you can tell that from his, like, the way yeah. he acts and his mannerisms. So that's that's seriously a straight line between the type of news coverage that was founded by largely CNN during the Gulf War and what we live in now. I mean, again, I think that's the, the rewarding part of the show as, if, as as someone making it, but also hopefully as, as a listener, is it's nice to, to find continuities. It feels like you, you're putting together a, a, a more complete picture of your world. It's that, that kind of stuff. It can also be horrifying when you're talking about this subject, but uh, there's a lot of stuff that that um, I feel um, I don't know excited about that that, that we found that um, completes that picture um, of the modern era since you know the the Gulf War that that we still inhabit. Um, some things have changed. Some things have gotten worse. You, uh, hypernormal, you could you could say, but um, the ingredients were there. You know, and, and Iraq was a big part of that. Um, 
uh, in both the Gulf War context, the 90s sanctions context, you know, we talk about ignoring a body count, you know, with COVID. Um, it worked in Iraq. You know, we, we, ignore, we ignored a body count during the 90s as we literally starved a country to death. And then we ignored a body count uh, in the 2000s as we uh, tortured and, and shot a country to death. Um, the fact that they were Iraqis made it okay. Now that it's Americans dying from a disease, while no less, um, you know, wrong and, and horrific for the, for, for the victims and their families, uh, suddenly the New York Times wants to get all teary-eyed and, san and sanctimonious about a president who won't look at body counts. Where was that back in 2005? It wasn't in the paper because they were just around to getting into to their own mea culpa for helping the war happen. Right, right. You know? Um, I want to get us towards the wrapping up here because I don't want to keep you guys too much longer. Yeah. But um, I, I briefly, one of the most enjoyable parts of the the podcast uh, to me has been uh, the the life and times of Ahmed Chalabi. Uh, I feel like you have to be a real Iraq, a, a real Iraq War head to re even remember Chalabi because he didn't, you know, as big as he was, big a deal as he was in the run-up to the war, uh, like, he never got to be prime minister. He never got to, you know, achieve his his dream of running Iraq. Uh, but he's such an absurd character, and I, it's almost sad to me that he's kind of faded somewhat from, from, uh, uh, from our consciousness. Uh, you know, this guy who was, like, wanted by authorities and, like, uh, you know, Jordan and, and elsewhere for, like, uh, looting a bank and running off with the money who the CIA gave, yep. you know, $40 million to, to do whatever he wanted with. It's just, like, the absurdity of that story. Yeah, and I yeah. wondered uh, briefly if you could just, you know, talk about how uh, how the Chalabi story kind of hit you as you were researching it. You know, it's funny, uh, and I, I owe, we, we say it on the show, but we owe all of the Chalabi details to the wonderful book, The Man Who Pushed America to War by R.M. Rostin. Um, he's, I believe, a Reuters reporter now. I think he was AP at the time. Um, and uh, it's a great book. It's a real page turner. It's a biography of Chalabi, um, but a very critical one and one that doesn't shy away from just laying bare how much of a world historical fraudster and piece of shit he was. So that that book in and of itself formed the backbone of our Chalabi uh, content. But there was something fun about bringing it to life outside of a book about, about sort of, um, again, using this serial narrative format because I in the beginning I was a little nervous if we could uh, hook people with him because he's not super involved, he's not directly involved with America for a little bit. Um, so he's kind of he's kind of weaved in and out of the story, and I, I just was trusting that people would would understand that these are two paths that are going to cross. And of course, in episode two, uh, they finally do uh, because the CIA, as you pointed out, started to use him as an asset to um, almost completely uh, unsuccessful effect. Uh, but then he gets a big comeback during the George W. Bush administration. And so I, I think Chalabi was one of the early reasons I, 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 like before I mentioned, I was unsure about doing the podcast. I, I thought about Chalabi and telling the story of Chalabi, and I thought that does sound like a fun thing to do because uh, I've described him as a Coen Brothers character. Maybe Safty Brothers <laughs> is the more contemporary reference. He's, he's, you could see him in those movies because he's just a, he's, he's getting away <laughs> with so much for, and he doesn't deserve, he doesn't deserve any of it. And he's, he's this larger than life, 
um, figure, and but also the thing I'd want to underline because people can listen to the show if they want to hear more about him. But uh, right here, the, what I'd want to underline is there's there's often a Chalabi. With any one of these these things, look for the Chalabi. I'm not saying because he doesn't he doesn't explain the whole Iraq War, but he's a big part of it. And Juan Guaido is a Chalabi. <laughs> yes, that's he's true. A, he, right. He's a he's he's a guy who he may not be literally in exile at this or for for the entire period that he was trying to do his coup, but he's a little smarty pants who thinks that his pure charisma can uh, es- essentially charm the great Satan to 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 the north to overthrow the existing government that he could run a lot better. And uh, he failed, even worse than Chalabi did. At least Chalabi got the invasion. Uh, and then and then everyone inside of Iraq hated him so much that he never really ended up being in charge of it. I mean, he, he had a couple positions, right. but he never was the top dog. But, uh, you know, there's always these two different versions. You know, sometimes you get the military junta. That's what, like, we see in Bolivia. Um, other times you get the charismatic exile, you know, and... Um, you know, you think of maybe Cuba, for example. There were all kinds of wannabe Chalabis uh, throughout the 20th century trying to um, be the the Chalabi. Sure. For I Cuba. mean, there's a couple. Um, there's a couple in Juan Iran. Guaido I mean, is the, the one doing the, it for Venezuela. You know, uh, Reza Pahlavi and and Turkey. The, the uh, you know the a lot of exiles uh, trying to set themselves up in that way. Yes. Yes, and so he's an important archetype as well as individually being a wacky character who's very fun to see because he does fail by by, by most accounts. Uh, so it's fun to see him rise and fall. Um, but he's also he represents something bigger that you always need to you always need to be suspicious. There's that guy with China right now, Andy Zaz, I think his name is, or uh, or um, something like that, where he's he's the guy. He's some Christian. He's some Christian fanatic who is. Um, if not wholly making up a lot of stuff about China and its totalitarian nightmare world, he's uh, he's exaggerating it to he's exaggerating it to a degree of of like parody. And it's it, you see a lot of these articles. You click on that link. You click on that sources page or whatever, and it's this guy Zaz, another great name by the way. He's some German uh, fraudster, uh, Christian psycho. So so I, again, it's it's not to be reductive, but these characters are important. Uh, whenever you're looking at some some uh, imperial uh, uh, boondoggle in 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 waiting, you know. Uh, yeah, Zaz is an interesting case because he's not only cited as an expert in a lot of stuff, but he's I mean he writes you know he's written op eds for a lot of places himself, and I I noticed like I'd never heard of him until you know recent this recent story about uh, Chinese authorities supposedly forcibly sterilizing Uyghur women and it seemed to be based a lot on his and apparently I mean like he's written a book about the rapture and like just a a a weird guy and if you look you know when he writes for the New York Times or he writes for foreign policy or he writes for uh, this outlet or that outlet that's never mentioned in his bio like the the, his his publication of a book I mean a whole book who wouldn't want to mention their book in their bio but it's never mentioned uh, that he's got this other Interest. A lot of people didn't. A lot of people didn't mention that Chalabi was uh, never ne- never returning to <laughs> Jordan right, because right. he uh, had done sixty five million dollars worth of fraud. You know that there was a standing standing sentence right. for him. You know that was left out of many accounts. Probably not all of them, but I mean, the more generous the the broadcast 
was or the article was toward invasion, the more you could rely on that never being even mentioned, which seems relevant, you know, just as it seems relevant that the guy talking about China is a Christian fanatic who, uh, you know, you wouldn't listen to on the street corner, let alone in the New York Times. So my my last question, uh, something you brought up earlier in the interview was is the the name of the podcast blowback uh and i i wanted to ask you guys to talk about why you picked that name uh and kind of tie it into like if you have one message to leave people uh you know or what you want people who listen to the 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 series to take away from uh, their experience uh what would that be i guess like the way i would say it then is um like to me, like blowback, you know, the question that Brendan and I sort of posed was that like, you know, there's this sort of idea, I think when people use blowback in sort of common parlance, um, what they're describing is sort of just like consequences, generally unintended of something you did. Like, they, oh, I wrote this angry, or like, you know, if you're a journalist writing an angry article, I get a lot of blowback. I didn't necessarily mean that. And you just sort of, it's, it's viewed as a consequence. And I think what we sort of, when we looked into this, you know, something that we found was that all these people had done all of this like, 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 you know, they, they, they'd done all these things and it seemed like pretty evident that they must have known or that it was evident in their planning that they would, you know, like kick up a, a whole bunch of shit. For example, the looting uh, immediately after the invasion, which the American government encouraged and said was a sign of freedom and, and so on. And so I think the idea was that, well, what if blowback is actually part of the, the equation? That like, what if blowback is sort of the thing that actually helps legitimate this, that by creating lots of problems, you create a need for your continued engagement and for your continued dominion. And, you know, Iraq, perhaps you could argue that the blowback was so substantial that it actually backfired and and it did not work um, towards like the long term strategic interests of some of these people. They still got plenty rich anyway, but still. I think, though, that like it's still a useful way to help kind of think about why, like, you know, these people pursue things that they know are going to end in such calamity. And it's because that's the system, you know, that's the feedback loop that continues to keep them fed and continues to give them, you know, a purpose, a sense of purpose and, you know, the kind of zeal that all these warmongers seem to have. Yeah, it, it's it's certainly not to say there aren't cases in which American foreign policy and crimes committed abroad uh, don't produce unforeseen consequences um, to, to, to put America or any empire as this all-knowing, all-powerful entity that, that knew uh, every domino effect would happen is, is also silly uh, and unserious. But I think we're, with the show, in, in all kinds of ways, we wanted to always be pushing back against the common wisdom that is almost exculpatory, like oh bush and his 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 cabinet were a bunch of bunglers you know they just they, they they did a big oopsie and it was really bad but now that it's over it's like well he made a mistake but come on we all know this wasn't a mistake and of course you know we know that <laughs> dedicating an entire you know wing of your government to fabricating evidence that's not a mistake uh so let's not take that at face value that 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 was that's exculpatory if we do that that's that that's not a good thing to believe but similarly when you actually look at the the consequences on the ground i think a lot of cases what was dismissed as blowback aka karma 
is is a little bit more complicated. And we talked about this with with Naomi the other day, where she wanted to urge, you know, they really did think they were going to waltz in there and create a free market utopia, but they were covered if they didn't, because the individuals carrying this stuff out and the people connected to them, you know, we're all going to get rich. And that even if there, and what I would then advance further is, even if there were a resistance that cropped up, which of course there was, and even if there was chaos, ultimately that just creates more opportunities for private military contractors, the state to, you know, do another imperial adventure in response, stuff like this. So essentially, it's house money. Um, whoever wins, we lose. And uh, that that is the... I think deeper idea that we want to communicate with the relatively pithy title blowback um, because uh, as Noah pointed out and as I say at the end of the, the series to just say we're a big you know oafish giant who who sometimes gets bitten the ass by what we used to do I think that's letting us off too easy things aren't that simple and and they're also a lot more uh, interesting. Okay, the podcast, again, is Blowback. Uh, you can be listening to it. It's being released uh, one episode a week now uh, on your favorite podcast app. But if you want to listen to the whole thing, go to stitcherpremium.com with the, the promo code Blowback, all one word, uh, and you get access free, uh, free access to Stitcher Premium for the month. And uh, therefore, you can listen to the whole show as it as it is, including uh, all the bonus episodes. Uh, do you guys anything yep. else going on that you guys want to promo, uh, whether it's related to this or not? The uh, the only thing I have, no, the only thing I'd add is just that um, a couple of those bonus episodes are only ever going to be on Stitcher Premium. We we try to get as many of them outside of the paywall as possible, but um, a couple of them, including. Um, a conversation with Felix Biederman uh, about the Iraq War and video games, and then a conversation with anti-war activist Kathy Kelly about uh, the sanctions in the 90s and uh, and then her uh, being in Iraq for the war. Uh, th those are never going to get released for free. Um, so, so if you want to hear them, uh, why not sign up with promo code BLOWBACK? All right. So there you have it. You guys should go do that right now. It is free for a month. Check it out. Uh, stitcherpremium.com with the promo code blowback uh noah coolen and brendan james uh thank you again so much for coming on and thank you for doing this podcast which i think uh is not only extremely valuable and extremely timely but was very well done congratulations on really doing a, a, a an awesome job thanks derek it was uh it was a pleasure to come on thank you once again, I want to thank Noah Coolin and Brendan James for coming on the program. Uh, the podcast, again, is blowback. Uh, it's tremendous. And whether you are somebody who still sort of marinates in the Iraq War and the absurdity of that time uh, today, like me, uh, or you're somebody who has either, uh, in, a, in a healthy way, kind of let it fade from your consciousness, uh, or uh, was really too young to, to remember what was going on at that time. Uh, no matter what your approach or what your background is, uh, check out their podcast. You will either learn something that you didn't know or remember something that you'd forgotten or both. Uh, and it is really a tremendously uh, well done show and I highly recommend it. Uh, with that, until next time, as always, thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.